0: Welcome, welcome to the first episode number one of It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of 89N, which of course is the home of Managed Flitter and a few other bits and pieces. And with me, I also have my other co-founder, James Peter. Welcome, James.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Uh, It's exciting. First podcast? First podcast.
0: I hope it's not the... um, Last? Well, it won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: no, I'm sure people will like this one, and uh, and yeah, it'll be be great to see how it goes. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time putting all the the gear together, so um, I'm quite excited to have this sort of professional setup. And um, yeah,
0: and um, if you are listening to this podcast, just be a little bit patient with us because we have been screaming up the audio learning curve, and we've got a little bit of a way to go. But hopefully, the production value will get better and better each time we've got the right equipment, now we just have to get our head around it. So we actually have a very exciting show lined up for you today but before I talk about what is going to be on the show just want to tell you how you can get in touch with us because we want your feedback We want to know what interests you, who you want on the podcast This podcast is basically about everything relating to the tech economy how does technology, how does the internet affect our lives affect our businesses affect the way we view the world so you can email us at podcast at it's you can also tweet us. At Monkey Podcast, and we've also set up a telephone number where you can phone in with your comments, your questions, your queries, your suggestions for guests. That number is a US number, 415 628 3889. So that's a US number, 415 625 3889. So what's coming up on the show is James and myself are going to talk about some ex- uh, some tech news that's happened this week. Some really interesting stories, including the founder, um, the founders of Twitter, the original founders launching their new platform. We are also going to have two very special guests. Special guest number one. Um, is gonna be Steve Factor, or I should say special guest number two. Steve is an entrepreneur, futurist, digital digital commerce expert. I stumbled upon a great article by Steve uh, relating to the Twitter API. And now if you're a Twitter user, and particularly if you're a person that has developed apps around the Twitter space, you'll well be aware that there are rumblings that Twitter are gonna enforce a lot of their rules of the roads a lot more strictly. So we're gonna be talking to Steve about platforms in general. Um, how should businesses approach developing a product around a platform? What is the state of play? Where is that going to go? We're also going to be talking to Dr. Larry Rosen. And Dr. Rosen is a professor and past chair of psychology at Californian, California State University. And he's a recognized expert in the psychology of technology. And he's just written a terrific book about eye disorder, about our compulsive Relationship and attachment to technology. James, do do you ever experience phantom vibrations or fan, hear phantom
1: rings on your phone? Absolutely, uh, or had uh, had it happen quite a while. Uh, you know, you can often sort of be walking along and check your phone and lift it up, and uh, and suddenly find nobody's actually called you. So yeah, it's a big problem.
0: So we'll we'll ask Dr. Rosen what's that all about. So there's definitely something going on. In terms of our brains hoping or wishing or, or being addicted to technology. But let's, let's get right into it. And we're going to talk about some of the, the breaking stories this week around the tech economy. I'd like to get straight into the most exciting story. Well, I think that one of the most interesting things, um, the Twitter guys, Biz and Ev, announced just literally an hour ago, our time, whilst we were recording this podcast, their new platform called Medium.
1: Yeah, it's exciting. It's uh, it's uh, quite a departure from their their existing their existing work. Um, I think it's much less uh, formed than a lot of their their previous projects. But it's still in the very very similar space. It's uh, it's some sort of publishing platform. It's not really clear sort of how it's going to evolve yet. But um, yeah, I think they're basically doing a a modern take on. Uh, on, on web publishing, it's sort of a combination of uh, images and text and uh, and collaboration and, and, and you know their own their own take on it. They've obviously done great things with um with uh, they did Blogger, weren't they? Was that their one?
0: Yeah, um, Ev was involved in Blogger. He mentions here, 1999 was the year that we launched Blogger. Ideas that seemed radical at the time that anyone anywhere could and should publish their thoughts to the global Internet audience for free are now taken for granted. What I find interesting, they seem to have taken some of their learnings from Twitter, obviously, and put it into this platform. And, you know, on Twitter, we all know that most people use Twitter as a, a curation and, and reading, um, um, processing, digesting content tool and not so much as a publishing tool. And he speaks in his blog posts on launching of Medium how they, they realize that that most people consume media and not everyone publishes media, but those that want to publish um, can should be able to get as much penetration in a way um,
1: without necessarily being someone famous. It's such a big market. Um, you, you, know, you can see them repeatedly trying the same idea in different ways. It's the whole sort of publishing of content. Um. You know, if anybody else had done it, I I probably would have just dismissed the idea in a few minutes. It's just, you know, it's such a bold thing to continually try and reinvent uh, publishing. But they've been so so successful at it so far, it's, um, you know, it's hard to dismiss it. Um, And I played around with what they've currently got. I mean, it's obviously a very early version of the site, um, and it's kind of hard to see where it's going. But even in its current version, like, it's still very engaging. I actually spent quite a lot of time reading the articles and and yeah it was it's quite a unique experience so it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves it's almost like
0: twitter 2.0 yeah, 3.0 yeah. Uh, they they probably going to avoid getting that label it's it's part tumblr it's part pinterest it's it's part twitter um, um we'll be able to uh, tell in the in, in the days to come but that that's medium it's called medium it's their umbrella company is called obvious corporation and you can follow um, Ev and Biz on Twitter I'm sure if you're a tech person you're already following Ev and Biz of course the co-founders with Jack Dorsey of the platform we all love so much
1: You, you can also go to medium.com and sign up right now it's, uh, the site is, is live, you can't actually do anything you can you can vote on articles but um, they haven't re- opened publishing to uh, any beyond, anyone beyond a small audience at this point but uh, if you sign up hopefully you'll be at the front, front of the queue when they do I wonder how much they paid for that domain.
0: <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good domain. Um, so that's Medium and that's literally just, just broke this morning, that story. Um, another thing that um, I find quite interesting, uh, Clout seems to have tweaked their algorithm to hopefully map the real world a little bit more closely.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. They've, um, they've definitely been iterating continuously on their system. I mean, they've, they've obviously been uh, the brunt of a fair bit of criticism over the years. Um, you know, a lot of, some, some, some constructive, some not so constructive. But um, And they're, they're obviously iterating on their idea of uh, trying to measure social value. Um, and this this is obviously their, their latest attempt. Um, I, I think the most interesting thing was I saw in that article, um, there was an article on businessinsider.com about it. And it quoted um, um, it quoted uh, the founder. It said um, uh, Fernandez, and it said um, uh, one of the things they've done is they've basically uh, used other world sources uh, like Wikipedia to basically try and find credibility. So, for example, now um, Barack Obama is is much higher up in the list, and Justin Bieber is a lot lower. And one of the interesting points in the article was uh, Fernandez said. Um, Uh, There was a point where he was like, the next person who asked me about Justin Bieber, I'm punching in the face. (laughs) I saw saw that in the article. And uh, yes, and and as people that work a lot on
0: Twitter, we know uh, how he's... uh, It's pervasive. We're all a little bit saturated,
1: to say the least. Dominates it, so uh his he's always no matter where you look on Twitter, there's something about Bieber, Bieber somewhere in the usernames or, or blog posts or yeah. And I place. guess he's only half to blame. It's 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 his fan base have embraced
0: it and leveraging it for, for heavens heavens knows what. I d I don't know I, I can't always
1: quite work out what they're hoping to achieve. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I mean, you know, obviously by pure numbers, if you go by followers then obviously you know, Bieber and uh, Lady Gaga and all these people are influential in that sense. But um, you know, on the other hand, you know, people like Barack Obama obviously is more real world influential. So, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to know where they're going and how successful they're going to be. But um, you know, at least they're they're iterating on it, and um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. What they do they've they've added some increased transparency to the site as well which is something i've always thought was was needed so they've um, gone into a bit more detail about their how their agri- algorithm works um, and introduced this thing called moments that basically um, shows you key parts of your timeline that have contributed to your um, your clout being increased um, i think they could still do a lot better job of transparency of you know explaining you know how your clout score is is driven But, um, you know, at least it's a step in the right direction.
0: I think it still seems to be a very much an early adopter curiosity. There's no one that isn't in the industry that has even referenced it or is aware of it. So there is still some way to go. But it is a a problem that needs to be solved and and they're having a go at it. Yeah. Good luck to them. Absolutely. Um, The other story that's relevant and interesting is app.net ultimately raised over $800,000. Let's just to give, uh, to give a little bit of a background of that story, there's the whole Twitter ecosystem issue, i.e. Twitter, uh, when they launched their, their service, they were very open and, and encouraging of people to build products around their ecosystem. Over time, there's, there's a conflict of interest with um, certain aspects and certain products um, in the ecosystem, and um, app.net is, is is a group of people that would like a a platform to um, dominate in the sense of um, that the users own the platform and have the most vested interest, as opposed to the, the advertisers, which is ultimately what Facebook and Twitter and land up uh, being the, the the biggest vested interest And they put a um, call out on Kickstarter to raise half a million bucks to launch some infrastructure to, uh, a platform a social media platform around which products can be built at one stage it looked like they weren't going to make their um funding limit about two or three days out they were about three hundred thousand or something
1: yeah, a bit touch and go there i was i was watching it. And I, I i didn't think they would do it actually but um yeah i'm, I'm impressed they did they've, they've reached it in the end last few days
0: so it'll be really interesting to watch what happens with app.net. We'll try to get them on the show, one of the guys, um, to talk about it. I, I certainly think it's it, it's it's always good when um, there's activity in the space of any sorts. Obviously, there's a lot of frustration from people in the Twitter ecosystem. I personally think Twitter are trying to work all of this out themselves. And I have no doubt they, they're keeping an eye on what's happening uh, app.net Net are doing because things can can move incredibly fast and not always in 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 your right direction in our space.
1: Yeah, it's it's very bold what they're doing. Um, I, I mean, it's it's a needed move. Um, you know, there's been lots of attempts at this kind of stuff, like Identica and you know those kind of apps um you, you know i've got i've got two main questions for them really which i think they they need to sort of figure out uh, how they're going to solve i think the first one is the obvious one how do they get the users in um you know it makes a lot of sense from our perspective you know we work on twitter we work you know as an app developer on twitter so you know we we we, we understand that need from a from a business point of view um of why why a paid service is better but um you know, is is paying for no ads really going to be uh, a driving force in bringing users? I, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there there are plenty of other ways they can do it. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's a, it's a lost cause. They might find some you know marketing channel, or they might just the you know the network effect of um, of businesses taking it up might be enough to pull in the users. But um, I think that's their their biggest hurdle. Um, Someone made an interesting point. I mean, over and above the actual dollars and cents.
0: Someone made an interesting point that you have these fantastic companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google with amazing infrastructure and technology and brilliant people, and essentially they just work. I, I, they they reduced to working out how best to advertise, and it's it's yeah. it's almost it's almost philosophically a bit anticlimactic that the that the pr- the problem gets reduced down to just this um, capitalist consumerist sort of uh, um, you know element.
2: Uh,
1: absolutely you know i you know i think it's the case um that going for a paid system a freemium system or you know some system that relies on the users paying for it is is definitely you know it's a way it's the future i I see it see it as increasingly being so you know with advertising online advertising just um continuing to kind of diminish and the returns on that becoming harder to you know um you know pick up it's I, i think it is the next stage i mean if this implementation will succeed it's you know it's going to be that's really the question so it's just going to be interesting to see how it plays out
0: but surely um google facebook twitter there's a lot of smart people working there surely they have done the numbers many 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 times and freemium just doesn't match up to the potential of what they're pulling in from advertising
1: Absolutely, yeah. I've, I mean, I've seen it many times, particularly in the publishing space. You know, When publishers try and bring out a, a paid-for model, you know, it just doesn't succeed. They just can't bring in the dollars in the same way that advertising can do. Um, but by the same token, you know, there's, it, it's, it's just got so many problems with it. Like Having the advertising model means that you, you do have to put the advertisers first, not the users, um, and it just means the incentives are, are lined up the wrong way. And you know, it's always the businesses that can align their their business incentives with you know the with making their users happier are, are always the most successful ones because you know that's just what they're always driven to do. So you know, I think you know the right implementation, I guess, will, will 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 do it. It's just trying to find what that is.
0: And who knows? Maybe this will be a bit of a watershed moment in terms of really flipping things and changing things. So that that's app.net. Net. Um, you listening to the It's a Monkey podcast where we talk about everything relating to the tech economy. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm sitting here with James Peter. We are the co-founders of 89N, which of course is the, the home of Manage Flitter and CheckDog and Cow. You can call and leave a message or comments on US number 415-625-3889 we will broadcast selective messages. So if you want to do a shout out to your Twitter account or your your blog URL, feel free. Um, You can also email us at podcastitsamonkey.com. So next up, we're going to talk with Steve Factor. Steve Factor is an entrepreneur, futurist, digital e-commerce expert. And we are going to talk to him about this whole issue relating to the Twitter ecosystem. Um, Steve's written a great article which um, is available on his blog.
3: The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code Monkey2. At ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free Budgie account.
0: You're listening to Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. The exciting episode number one, the very first episode of It's a Monkey. You can follow us on Twitter at monkeypodcast. Tweet us. You can also email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. So let's talk about everything Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, we all love to use these services. Google as well. And one of the excellent things, of course, about these services is that a lot of different products plug into these services. We play Zynga games on Facebook, on Twitter. We use TweetDeck, we use TwitPick. So one of the aspects of Web 2.0, um, dare I use the buzzword, which is so fantastic, is the openness and the hooks into different products. Now, Twitter is one of the most interesting uh, products around this this platform, this ecosystem issue. Of course, when they started, they had an incredibly open ecosystem. They almost encouraged people to play around with their API. Even a couple of years ago, they had a conference specially for their developers. But things have been changing um, over the last couple of years at Twitter they have been growing, their pressures to make money have um, increased, and their attitude towards the ecosystem has changed slightly, um, probably a little bit more than slightly, so there's interesting things going on in in the ecosystem um, relating to Twitter. And a couple of months ago, Twitter pulled the plug on LinkedIn um, integration. And over and above pulling the plug on LinkedIn integration, they came out with a statement um, that says, related to that, we've already begun to more thoroughly enforce our developer rules of the road with partners. For example, with branding and in the coming weeks, we will be introducing stricter guidelines around how the Twitter API is used. Of course, this sent the ecosystem, the Twitter ecosystem into a big frenzy. Twitter have still not come out and actually um, clarified exactly what they mean so i thought i'm going to get one of the the platform commentators the gurus to join us on the it's a monkey podcast and i'm very happy to invite and to to have with us on the episode number one of the it's a monkey podcast steve factor all the way from the east coast of the usa steve welcome a pleasure to be here I'll just give a very quick summary of who you are and what you're about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your bio on your website says you're an entrepreneur, futurist, digital commerce expert, uh, uh, founder of Startup Incubator Idea Factory. And what uh, I like the most is you are a writer for Harvard Business Review.
2: I am all true, uh, or mostly true. I, I, and when I find this guy who's uh, broken into my website and written all those wonderful complimentary things, I'm going to thank them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's true. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've I've done a lot of uh, stuff. Um, you know, I, I worked with corporate a lot. Uh, you know, I was uh, head of the Chairman's Innovation Fund at American Express. Uh, before that, with uh, City and Mastercard. Um, but uh, most recently, I've been working. Uh, with entrepreneurs as well as on my own startup uh, to develop uh, several businesses and get them to market. Uh, so I've been uh, trying to connect startups with uh, larger corporations who uh, are looking to, you know, either partner or have them as customers. So that's kind of the, the the gap that I'm bridging between those two worlds. And of course, we
0: bumped into each other at. Davos just after both having a very interesting mutual chat with um, Warren Buffett, didn't we?
2: Yes. I, well, you know, it's uh, any conference, any opportunity to be surrounded by people <laughs> yakking about stuff is, uh, is great. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. I, I've, I'm, I'm almost full on conferences at this point. I, you know, I do a lot of uh, speaking, but I, I almost, you know, someone uh, told me, well, why don't you describe yourself as a speaker on your website? I said, you know, that's a sign that you've given up. That's a sign that you're no longer doing business. You're just talking about doing business. So I guess I've, I've started to feel that way about conferences. So, uh, you know, I, I, I love them dearly <laughs> for, uh, for what they are. But, uh, but for me, I think I get the pleasure uh, and the satisfaction from the doing, not necessarily from the talking about it, even though I do a fair amount through my blog and uh, through HBR and Business Insider and some other places that I write for
0: um, and of course we didn't meet at Davos. I don't know if you were at Davos, but I certainly wasn't at Davos and I certainly didn't have a um, conversation with Warren Buffett. I actually stumbled across you on your fantastic article about platforms, the risk that ate the digital entrepreneur surviving platform risk. And I have to tell you, if you are into um, everything relating to the broader issues around tech and platforms, Steve Blogg um, is fantastic. You can just Google him, um, Steve Um and uh, sorry, your bio sheets just, just popped away. Uh, Steve Factor, just Google Steve Factor and um, some really interesting non-fluffy content. Steve, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. Let's talk about this whole platform issue, um, which is absolutely fascinating. What is going on? Because I read your article and then I thought about what's going on with Twitter and it almost
2: seems like playing out in a textbook fashion. It really is and you know, not that there's a textbook on this either, uh, because the rules are sort of being made as we speak. But, you know, the rules of digital aren't that different from the rules of any kind of business, which is uh, you're either aligned with the strategy of your partner uh, or you're not. And in this case, the partner is either an active partner or a passive one, which is a platform that allows people to uh, or, or or others to build on them. And around uh, end of October, I wrote this blog post that That you've been referring to, which is surviving platform risk. Uh, And, you know, I could see this coming because, you know, depending on where uh, a platform is in its maturity cycle has a way of indicating how uh, slippery or difficult they might be uh, as a partner or as a way, uh, you know, a a place to build your business. So if you're, you know, if you saw all those companies uh, popping up uh, in the last few years uh, built on Twitter. Twitter, um, they were building on something that was uh, so new and also not making a penny. And to me, that is a sign of desperation. So so I I developed this uh, little matrix, uh, uh, two by two, um, which basically has uh, platform maturity on one axis and then profitability on the other. So they were neither mature nor profitable. So in my opinion, that makes them desperate. So none of these things that are happening now is, are a surprise to me because that's the lens I was always viewing it through. Right. And um,
0: I, I guess I get the sense from Twitter at the moment, everyone uh, in the, a lot of people in the ecosystem are really being highly critical of them. I'm um, coming out with petitions. Of course, there's app.net, which we can talk about a little bit, which I'm sure you've been across, yep. but I get the sense that they actually feel a little bit torn at the moment and they are a little bit um, confused or probably more than somewhat a little bit confused at how to consolidate all the different vested interests, um, their shareholders, their users, perhaps even their advertisers. What do you think going on on there and based on what they have and have not been saying?
2: Well, you know, the dilemma is one of adolescence, right? Who are you going to be? What is your identity? This is kind of like uh, uh, Twitter's uh, bar mitzvah, you know, where you know (laughs) everyone says you're a man, but you you don't have a job and you can't really support yourself. Uh, So uh, that's what's going on with them. They are uh, at a stage where you know they've they're supposedly worth a lot of money because they're they've got a, a huge user base, but they're not. Monetizing it nearly to the level that uh, they should. So now they have to decide well, is Twitter gonna be the place where we force everyone to go because if you're going with an advertising model it's very hard to have it be distributed elsewhere you have to have it on your site in order for that to work uh, so that means they need to control the experience and they have to uh, get all of the users or as many as they can using their website rather than uh, using these distributed platforms where Twitter you know the, maybe the best it can do is said uh, send uh, these ad uh, advertising tweets through. Uh, but that really just pollutes the system. That's not a very um, elegant way to monetize. So their options are, you know, are kind of limited. So you could charge others to access your platform. Uh, so, you know, if you want to do analytics and you want to use tweets to do it, maybe they could charge B2B uh, uh, fees to others who, who do that. Uh, they could also license their content as they used to to Google, uh, which means Google gets a a way to uh, parse it and, you know, and, and redirect people towards it. So, um, you know, but those are relatively small streams. And, you know, I still have the suspicion that it just may not be a big business. Uh, so it, it may have these huge expectations and huge valuation, but in reality, it may just be a nice little business uh, that uh, may never be able to, to fully uh, live up to these huge expectations of 140 character communication.
0: And I think there's been a lot of talk in the developer ecosystem versus the platform versus product. And I guess when Twitter first evolved, there was a lot of excitement because of the open API and it coming out as a platform that everyone can build into. And now they seem to be pulling in that platform and trying to evolve themselves more into a product. And I guess in response. Um, there's App.net, which, just to explain, um, is 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 a developer that has uh, would like is quite disappointed in the fact that Twitter is evolving more into a product and sees it as a lost opportunity that it hasn't evolved more into a platform. He got onto Kickstarter and said, "I'd like to raise half a million bucks bucks to develop." this platform this infrastructure piece that can power social media apps um he raised over his targets i think he's sitting at over eight hundred thousand dollars steve did you sign up did you contribute to that
2: you know, I did. I gave him 50 bucks. But, you know, I, I was wondering about that because I, I I think there's something sketchy about the numbers. Uh, I think there might have been a a big a few big lump sum donors towards the end because yeah, right. when I looked, there were, I think, uh, six days left or maybe even five, and they were at less than half of their target. So I think the target was 500,000, and they were hovering around 267, maybe 280 um, around – with. Uh, you know, maybe with five days left. So I think someone with some big money, uh, stepped in to, 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 you know, make up the difference. I can't prove it, but, uh, anyway, I, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I basically prepaid for one year of use and I certainly am curious as to what they're going to do, uh, in terms of, uh, creating something compelling, uh, as a platform. And one of the things I wrote about in my book, uh, Connovation was, um, you know, this, idea of you know uh, customer versus user, and I think a lot of people get that confused because in the case of uh, let's say Facebook, the users are not the customers. So there's that natural friction that's going to exist between the people who are uh, you know uh, clicking away and hitting like buttons and all that, and then the people who are actually paying, which are the uh, the companies and corporations, to target them and advertise to them. So it's in a way you know you are the product. in in that scenario. So if you can align those interests and and certainly the best way to align those interests is to make the the user the customer. So that that way you are the one who's paying and all incentives are to service your needs rather than someone else. So, you know, if you look at who gets a phone number to call on Google, it's not the users of Gmail. It's the people who uh, advertise on Gmail. Same thing with Facebook, same thing with all these other places. That's uh, th- that's the reason, you're, you're just uh, you know uh, a, a freeloader of sorts to them.
0: And that's what's interesting about app.net where they've come out really strongly and saying that the, the developers will be their customer and they're not looking at building out a product although they essentially have an initial product which they say is just an example of what will be able to be built. On App.net, I think it's great for the 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 social media um, space to stir it up a bit and probably get Twitter thinking even strongly around what um, what is the correct thing to do. Of course, part of the frustration is that everyone really loves Twitter and loves developing around Twitter and would hate things to change really dramatically. I'm talking with Steve Factor, who's an entrepreneur, futurist, digital commerce expert, and Harvard Business Review writer. We're talking about all things platform um, relating to Twitter, Facebook, etc. Steve, tell me, um, if you were a developer starting out today or a developer with a, a product plugged into the Twitter ecosystem, you talk in your article about how to mitigate and, and think of the risk, what, what would you do today?
2: Well, the first thing I would do is really understand how aligned I am with the with the platform on which I depend. Uh, So, you know, if you're already in business, you know, chances are you have a pretty good handle on that. Uh, But, you know, I I put some bullet points on my website. It's ideafactory.com. You essentially need to see. Well, uh, you know, is are the things that I'm doing. Appealing to the platform? Am I helping them attract new customers? Uh, Am I making money for them as well as for myself? Um, You know, uh, do I have them as an investor, or would they ever invest in in my business? Um, You know, so uh, those types of things are really important considerations. Now, if you're not aligned, if you're starting to compete with the platform, or if you're starting to do things that uh, are testing. Um, you know where they want to go with their business uh, or if you're maybe providing a better user experience and you're and they're trying to attract people to their website well then you've got a problem so at that point I would think about how to diversify my uh, portfolio of what my business does. So I would seriously start considering, uh, just like any company that relies on one customer has significant uh, customer risk, or one supplier, or one of anything, or or a very handful of of those. Uh, So I think it's really important to diversify and start preparing for a future where you can be a standalone entity, Um, whether it's uh, just on the web, whether it's, you know, using AdWords, whether it's uh, using f- Twitter and Facebook and maybe LinkedIn, you know, so uh, start moving your business towards a, a path where you don't have to rely on, on other platforms. And if you do, try to do so with platforms that are of significant uh, maturity uh, because the alternatives are um, are, are, are very uh, dire. And I think that, you um, the thing that does work in your favor, if you have it, is leverage. So, if you are making money for the for the platform, and if you're big enough, then you have the ability to go make a deal with them and get some guarantees and say, yeah, you know, for the next three years or five years, I can do X or Y, and and you know, develop a rev share. So, a perfect example of that was Zynga. Uh, they essentially did that with Facebook uh, because they knew uh, both companies really knew that they were uh, good for each other. And uh, both needed the security of knowing that um, their good fortunes or mutual good fortunes would continue for a predictable period. Uh, But a lot of uh, startups and a lot of small businesses don't have that. Um, uh, luxury. So at some point they have to maybe rely on either community pressure or more kind of uh, uh, soft uh, type um, uh, negotiation tactics. And those may or may not work. So I, I would say the number one thought should be diversification.
0: And what would you do if you were in Twitter shoes? This is something I think about at night when I'm walking home. It's it's they, it is a tricky situation that they are in. I mean, what I would probably do just just before I'd, I I hear your answer is I'd probably have a a weekend uh, The Future of Twitter conference and just really brainstorm the hell out of it and really open it up and live stream it and just do a a total global brain dump about different scenarios and seeing there has to be some situation where everyone's interests can intersect and a sensible way forward can be um, stitched together.
2: Yeah, you know, I I have... um Uh, you know, I I haven't really been thinking that much about it. I, you know, I I understand the direction they are going in because uh, if you are going to be a content company and you are uh, either generating or attracting a lot of content or the amount that they do, uh, you know, the easiest way to do it is through page views and through advertising. That's, that's very simple. So they've been focusing on improving their experience and drawing everyone in. However, I I think uh, or, or my hunch is that the biggest dollars lie in the uh, corporate API so I would suspect that all, there are a lot of companies that are now being built uh, that are selling uh, social uh, analytics to corporations where I think you know uh, for any sort of professional or or high-volume use of the Twitter platform I think that's where uh, they're gonna make their money so so my um, uh, you know either advice or at least where I would look for the big dollars if I were them is looking at enhanced uh, connectivity To those B2B services where I would charge them for uh, access to, you know, uh, tweet analytics, uh, live feeds, and all kinds of uh, premium access that, you know, the typical uh, user may not want or need. Uh, And I think that there's probably a good amount of corporations that will want to to look at that data. So I think it's, um, you know, it's a rich... Uh, place to, to 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 dig anyway. Although, if
0: you look back in Google's history, they started out uh, thinking that their their business model would be selling search um, appliances or search servers to within corporates, and uh, look where they are today.
2: That's true. Um, I think uh, Google, though, started to uh, diversify at a at a rapid pace. Um, they were, you know, they went from search to pretty much you know, uh, being omnipresent in your digital life. So now you look at the the breadth of services, everything from, uh, email to, um, you know, uh, cloud storage and docs, uh, and, and all these other places where you spend lots and lots of your time. Um, I think now they, um, a destination and and clearly uh, became that. So they, they're, they're taking a huge slice of your web time. Uh, Twitter, uh, less so because of the, the, the first step they took out of the gate was to allow others to spread their, their, their message and spread their capability. Um, and now they're just sort of reining them back in. So I think that how they went to market will dictate a lot of, uh, how they can evolve. So, so Twitter might be able to do that, but I think it's, you know, it's, it has to go through this closed phase before it can again, go through a a more, um, uh, open one uh, like they started out with?
0: Well, I really hope that not too much will change. One of our popular products, Manage Flutter, of course, is built on the back of Twitter. We love building on Twitter. In fact, it's probably our favorite product. But um, interesting start times ahead. Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time to joining us. Uh, f- uh, to join us on the It's a Monkey podcast, the special edition number one. If you are interested in more what Steve has to say, he does have some fantastic articles on his blog. You can Google him Steve Factor with a K. And um, uh, no doubt will pop up, and you'll find his LinkedIn and his Twitter and his website. And Steve, hopefully, we'll chat with you again in the future um, and discuss the evolution of all these platforms.
2: That's great, Kevin. It was a interesting, pleasure.
1: Interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, good, good first interview. <laughs> He's uh, goes goes quite into depth into, you know, his point of view on it. So um, yeah, it's it's a very complicated area. Um, you know, there's lots of different takes you can you can have on the system, and it's you know I think you know everybody's sort of trying to guess you know what's going to happen in the future, and you know taking a look at what's happened in the past and trying to sort of extrapolate from that. Um, yeah.
0: Well, we'll see what happens with App. Net, and um, his point about diversification was interesting. I mean, we we obviously are the the, the developers of Managed Flutter, and um, we obviously very tied in with the uh, with some of that platform risk, and um, you, you know uh, I think I think the downside is that there is a lot of innovation that is not betting at the moment is being constrained because people are af- are afraid, and that's in a way everyone loses out. Twitter loses out, users lose out, um, the whole momentum loses out because. That risk is just, is just capping um, that innovation. But you know, these things are always a trade-off, and um, in, in a way it is breaking new ground, and, and it hasn't been done before. And I think Google and, and Instagram and Pinterest are all, all looking and following and trying to learn from Twitter's mistakes. That's, that's very clear.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting area. What would be the what would be the one thing you would change about the current sort of social ecosystem if you if you could? Of just Twitter's ecosystem, or in general? Uh, just in general about the whole sort of social Facebook.
0: One thing that I would change. Well, I think on the Twitter side of things, I I just to talk about um, them specifically. I really feel it's a lost opportunity to really engage their developer community. I think I can understand. I can understand, you know, the conflict of vested interests, etc. But I still, my gut tells me that, that there's still some untapped way where working together can just really augment the success on both sides of things. There's something just tells me that, you know, the 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 um, the, the sort of um, zero sum game approach, yeah, absolutely, I, 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 yeah, is sure. is not the right way to look at this issue. And, and the whole success
1: of Twitter is, is proof to the fact that it's it's not a zero-sum game. Yeah, I mean, you can see that even with Facebook and Zynga. I mean, despite Zynga's obviously current status and the, the share price falling, um, in fact, I just saw it's down to uh, about $5 from its uh, started off at about 30 and it's all the way down to about 5 now. But um, uh, the fact that they, they did get so high, I mean, it just shows that you can have a third-party uh, ecosystem that does drive, you know, very solid revenues, and you know everybody wins from that. Facebook won when it was popular, and Zynga obviously won. So uh, yeah, it's just trying to figure out how to make that work in and a sustainable it, way.
0: And it requires really a mature um, capitalist sort of outlook to to understand that at, at times you collaborate, at times you compete, but ultimately it's in everyone's interest. I remember in second year economics you 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 learn to mathematically prove that when people trade everyone is mathematically better off and i've never i've never forgotten yeah. that <laughs> and it's a, it's always a, it's always a powerful powerful argument absolutely um so you're listening to Kevin and James from 89N on the It's a Monkey podcast episode number 1 we finally got it off the ground we'd love to hear from you wherever you are in the world send us an email to podcast at itsamonkey.com, or you can even call us and leave a message and you might even get to hear your, yourself on air on our next podcast, 415-625-3889, a U.S. number. And we'd love to hear who you are listening to this, what your thoughts are on the Twitter ecosystem um, issue, who you'd like to hear on the podcast. Um, What do you think is uh, going on in in tech that we should cover, etc. And James, there was an interesting article published today um, on one of the sites about the internet, 2002 to 2012. What a difference a decade makes. And this really ties in nicely with our next guest, Dr. Larry Rosen, who will be talking about how technology has really um, infiltrated our lives. And the stats between uh, 2002 and 2012 The difference is absolutely um, substantially significant in terms of metrics like um, 2002, 10% of the the world's population used the internet. 2012, 33% of the world's population used the internet. In 2002, we only used the internet 46 minutes a day and in 2012, Four hours a day. I mean that that difference in stack there alone is is quite incredible.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite a good infographic. We should uh, we'll put a link up on the uh, on the blog post on itsmonkey.com uh, for the for this podcast. Um, yeah, one of the main te- main takeaways I took from that was um, just that everything seems to be diversifying a lot. Um, you know, if you look at the web browser usage, you know, in two thousand and two, it was ninety five percent Internet Explorer. Um, whereas now we're sitting, you know, almost equal share between Internet Explorer, Chrome and Firefox, um, you know, and Oprah and everything else in there as well. Um, and, yeah, obviously all the social networks, there's a big, you know, diversification and, you know, everybody's got such a bigger pie to work with. Um, it's just really spread out across all these different companies. And I
0: think what we find so exciting about the industry is the velocity has just gone from fast to super fast, to you know, light speed in terms of the way everything's going. And that's one of the reasons we put this podcast together is, is we have struggled to find content around what's going on and we like to stay up to date. And um, we feel that this, this podcast hopefully is filling a niche um, to, to, for people that are passionate involved in the industry. What was interesting in 2002, the three most searched for terms on Google was Spider-Man number one, which I found that interesting. Don't oh, that must was be the movie must release. have been the movie yeah, release. The original one, yeah. Um, Shakira number two. <laughs> um, number three was the Winter Olympics in 2012. Number one has been Rebecca Black.
1: <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> number two, Google Plus. That surprised me. Yeah, that's also interesting. Well, I, mean, I guess it's. Because Maybe it's because it's such a hard domain name to know. Like, if you are using Google Plus, even I probably put in Google Plus. I Google actually together. put in Google Plus
0: in because whether I, I can't remember if it's forward slash plus or yeah. it's, it's it's what the exact domain. is. So that that's a good point. Number three is Hurricane Irene, and number four is Pinterest, which I also found quite interesting in two thousand and twelve. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll see. Uh, Osama bin Laden is still still in the in the hit parade. Number nine. <laughs> So that's, uh, that's a great infographic. We will put a link up on our blog um, site. And I guess this, this is a good time to introduce our next guest, um, Dr. Larry Rosen. And over the last 10 years, it hasn't only been the Internet, um, what we've Googled, that has changed. But the way that technology has permeated our life directly, indirectly, has um, really been quite dramatic. And Dr. Rosen, who is a professor and past chair of psychology at California State University and is recognized as an international expert in the psychology of technology, will be up after the the break and we will chat to him about, is this a good relationship? Is this a bad relationship? Importantly, is it a functional relationship or a dysfunctional relationship? So stay tuned. After the break, we're going to be talking to Dr. Larry Rosen.
3: The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey two at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free Budgie account.
0: My name is Kevin Garber. You are listening to the It's a Monkey podcast brought to you by 89N. And of course this is the very special first podcast, podcast number one. And I'm very excited to say that we have with us Dr. Larry Rosen who is Professor and Past Chair of Psychology at California State University. He is a research psychologist, computer educator, keynote speaker, and is recognized as an international expert in the psychology of technology. He's the author of Rewired and My MySpace and I, and his latest book, Eye Disorder, which I did read yesterday on my Kindle, is understa- uh, all about understanding our obsession with technology and overcoming its hold on us. Dr. Rosen, thank you very much for joining us.
4: And thank you very much for having me on your
0: First show. Dr. Rosen, when I was reading your book, um, an image a friend sent to me a few months ago really popped into my head. This image was a photo. It had two photos. One of the traditional zombie with blood dripping down their mouth and looking like a zombie and the other photo had a group of three friends all staring at their mobile phone and the title was, we thought the zombie apocalypse would look like this pointing to the real zombies but instead it's arrived and it looks like this pointing to the people holding the phones and staring them in uh, in their hands.
4: Well, on the one hand I would think that's very funny and we should all laugh at it and the other is I think it's very true And in some sense, it's going to require us to change our behavior, I think.
0: Well, what I found really interesting is the contradiction in terms of we think technology is helping enable and gain more control of our lives, but in many ways it is actually enabling us or catalyzing us to lose control in many aspects.
4: Well, I think like with any technology that's introduced to society, it's the use of it and the excitement surrounding it is going to swing like a pendulum. And we saw that, for example, when television came in, it swung like a pendulum from people getting very excited to then people starting to worry about, I think the term then was couch potatoes, that we were all going to turn into little couch potatoes, and it swung back. And I think what we're starting to see now is the such a rapid influx of technology into our world that we no longer have time to assimilate it and we no longer have time to to ride that pendulum back and forth. So for example, where television took decades to penetrate society, uh, social media took on the order of a year or two to penetrate society. And then something like Angry Birds, which is just an app, took 35 days to penetrate society. So Yes, we're probably getting a lot of good out of our technology, but we're also fighting with having to continually be on the alert for something new, something interesting, something all our friends want to use, and it's becoming overwhelming, and what we're finding in all of our work is that it's becoming equivalent to an obsessive-compulsive disorder, and that's what concerns me more than anything else.
0: And I found one of your statements really interesting. The question is, are we functioning at our best level if even f- a few minutes away from our technology is driving us crazy?
4: And and we see that all the time. There There's a, a new phenomenon that's, that has just been studied called phantom pocket vibration syndrome. I think we all and feel it. it.
0: We, all, we all know that well.
4: Well, and it's funny because when, when I first started talking about this Maybe a year ago, people said, oh, what's that? That's crazy. And then research has come out, and then more people are coming out saying, oh, yeah, I feel that all day long. I think my pocket's vibrating. I grab my phone, and there's nothing there. And the reason that we do is because we are anxious about what we're missing out on or what we potentially might miss out on. And because of that anxiety, we feel like we have to continually check in lest we be the last person in the world to know something
0: i found one other comment in your book relating to that constantly checking in um sort of desire really fascinating around the concept of rituals in our modern society i guess we have very few rituals and interestingly um i believe even drug addicts when they struggling to give up drugs one of the things they comment that they miss A lot of is the rituals and preparing their concoctions, etc. What role is technology, particularly mobile phones, in actually plugging into that very human desire to actually um, go through rituals regularly?
4: Well, and I think the ritual is very straightforward. The ritual is every few minutes I have to reach into my purse or pocket, grab this small rectangular device, power it up, at which point then our attention is now grabbed. We may have only thought to power it up, to look to see if somebody texted us or called or sent an email, but in fact, because of the way that this little magical computer that we're carrying in our pocket, and I shudder ever to call it a phone, because it's really not a phone anymore, it's it's a computer, and it, it literally, then we have this sort of ritualistic behavior. And I can tell you best from me, is i would check it when it vibrates because i know for me that means probably a email message and then before i shut it down what i find is i see the icon for facebook on there and i click on that and then i check and scroll through you know to see any of my kids have posted anything anybody out there posted anything and then i see an icon for google plus and i click that and then i see an icon for this and i click that and then i see an icon for this and i click that And it becomes somewhat ritualistic, and I I noticed this actually the other night that I started to put my phone down for a second, and I went, oh, I haven't checked words with friends. And I thought, well, this is my last thing I have to check, but how did that pop into my brain that I missed it somehow? And that's, that's what a ritual is. That's where you perform this behavior without really thinking about it. That's what's happening, I think, to a lot of us.
0: My name is Kevin Garber and we're talking to Dr. Rosen who's the author of Eye Disorder all all about understanding our obsession with technology. Dr. Rosen on the flip side, on the positive side of things I know a lot of the research has has commented about ambient intimacy even as a manager and a CEO I've read some research that says if you do allow all your staff to stay in touch with their friends during the day via Facebook, email, etc., they are actually more productive because they feel less isolated, they feel less alienated. Surely it's not all bad news.
4: Right, and one of the, one of the gifts, I think, that we have gotten from technology, and, and I think perhaps this is the biggest gift, <clears throat> is the gift of connection. Uh, and it's only a few short years ago that there weren't even mobile phones, there weren't answer machines, The only way you could connect with someone is to see them face-to-face or talk to them on a telephone. And now you can get in touch with people in a variety of ways. And what it seems to do is it seems to satisfy people to have these sort of short, long-running communications with people to make them feel connected. And I know that there are other psychologists out there who will disagree with me, and they'll say that this is not a real connection. It's simply little sips of communication here, sips of communication there. But what we're not understanding is that these little sips of communication build up friendship networks in our brains. So the fact that I don't really talk to my four kids all that often on the phone, but we text, we Facebook, we Skype, we do this, I feel highly connected such that when we do see each other face-to-face, the conversations then take a different form. It's not like we have to, oh, fill me in on everything you've done in the last year. It, that, that doesn't need to be part of the conversation. So I think that the magical gift we get here is we get to stay connected with a larger and larger network of both people we love and care about, our, our sort of core ties, and but then also people that do add something to our lives, whether they add a little humor, they add stories, they add interest they still add something to our lives. So we've got this larger and larger network of connections that makes us feel more human. And I think it does make us more productive. When we're feeling better, we are more productive.
0: I think it sounds like, just like with everything else in life, there has to be a level of consciousness around all of this. And when things are getting too extreme for us, when our real relationships are being impacted by those small snippets and i what i one of your comments i found interesting was about nature and how nature is an excellent antidote to the techno stress and the and the techno saturation and i can comment myself i definitely a couple of times a year we've got a lot of access to great nature in australia and going to environments where there's no technology it really does recalibrate one
4: right and and what neuroscience is starting to tell us which I love, I'm so much in love with neuroscientists now, I think they're going to have the solutions for us all what they're able to tell us is here's what your brain looks like on technology, and when you look at it it looks highly overloaded looks like there's a lot of activation in lots of areas of the brain, particularly the very front part behind your forehead that controls everything and a little executive running around telling all the messages where to go and how to be routed, and Doing that for hours and hours on end is not good for your brain. It causes sleep problems at night. It causes processing problems. You don't learn as well. You don't retain information as well. And what neuroscientists have convinced me, at least, of is that about every hour or two, what you need to do is take about 10 minutes and reset your brain. And that's not like press that little red button on your brain and it resets it, because I wish there was one and it would be that That easy. That would be great. It would be much easier. But walk outside and look at some trees. Ten minutes. Ten minutes every hour to two. Walk outside, look at some trees. Talk to someone face-to-face or on the phone, as long as it's a positive conversation. If it's a negative conversation, that tends to overly involve your brain. Listen to some music for a few minutes. Exercise for a few minutes. Laugh at some jokes for a few minutes. Look at a picture book. Anything to get yourself away. And everybody knows what calms them down. I know for me, for example... Every couple hours I walk down, I brew a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, I maybe get a bite to eat, um, I have a running crossword puzzle that I sit in the kitchen, and so I come down and do that. I take about 10 minutes between making the cup of coffee and and getting a little snack and doing some crossword, and I come back feeling magically refreshed, and my brain seems to work now, whereas before it was pounding with overload.
0: And of course... One of the things that's become really interesting, which you do comment in your book, is that these services have become so user-friendly and so compelling? I mean, in the in the '80s and '90s, where um, you know there were green screens and command prompts, there was almost an inherent barrier that made it quite difficult. And even if you did love technology, it wasn't particularly elegant, it wasn't particularly pretty, it wasn't particularly easy. But these days, if you use a good program, and I know when we create our products, we actually do want them to become elegant, and we'd like people to sit in those products. So to speak and just feel wow i'm enjoying using this
4: right and the fact is that our screens are becoming more crisp crisp, so the pictures look better the the speakers are better the sounds are better everything is more compelling and that's part of the problem i think is that it is so compelling that it's hard to let go and also i mean i have to tell you that that the, the technologists are pretty smart um You know, if you go onto YouTube and watch a video on the side, it says, if you like this video, here's 20,000 more that you could watch. And just click on this one and this one and this one, and pretty soon you've now occupied yourself for two hours watching YouTube videos of cats doing fancy tricks. And the, the whole point of the technology is designed to make your experience easier, but what it's also doing is making your brain experience more overloaded. That's my concern.
0: And you quote someone in the book that's, that commented, media is my drug.
4: And media can be a drug. And it, particularly if you look at how the brain reacts. I mean, we've known for a long time that when the brain wants something for pleasure, it, reduces, it releases a chemical in the brain called dopamine. And we know that kids who play video games show excess dopamine in their brains, for example. They're getting a little bit of pleasure out of playing that game. And the the whole point of technology is designed to create more and more of a sense of pleasure. And in the brain, when there's pleasure, the brain wants to do that activity again. So if it's pleasurable to watch a video of cats, then your brain's going to want to compel you to do more and more of that. And if you don't, your brain's going to then start putting out chemicals that it labels as anxious. And now you're going to do it not because you want the pleasure, because you're anxious that you might miss out on getting it. And so it's a very difficult mixture of what's going on inside your head. And we really need to be aware of that and recognize that our brains do have limitations. Computers may not have too many limitations, but our brains do. They're not any different. They have not changed. And the technology around us has drastically changed.
0: Dr. Rosen, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future and our relationship with technology? This is something I think a lot about. I believe that machines will wake up possibly in our lifetime. That's our topic for another day. But what's your general view about the future and and uh, um, technology in our lives?
4: I think that if we learn how to manage it, and I think that's a big if, that I think we're looking at at least several more decades of an exceedingly positive experience because we know that the vast amount of information now makes our lives much easier. We don't have to ask ourselves how to get from point A to B. We just Google map it or MapQuest it. We know that if there's any information, we know where to find it or we can find it in a matter of moments. The problem I see is that if we do this without regard for what's happening to us, then we're going to end up all being very anxious with highly overloaded brains. And that's not going to be good because anxiety breeds problems. And that's my concern. Having said that, I'm the biggest geek of all. And I'm talking to you from, you know, sitting in front of five screens right here. And I know that I am fortunate to be alive in this era where anything I want I can find and anything that I dream can be done. And when there are 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds building apps for iPhones and for Androids, you're looking at a limitless future.
0: And I think um, what would be interesting, Dr. Rosen, is if we could take phone calls on this show one day and maybe we can uh, all have a support group for people calling in with their their techno-stress issues and we can share some solutions.
4: That sounds wonderful. Let's put it on the list for maybe 2014.
0: Sounds good. Dr. Rosen, um, the author of Eye Disorder, a really great book. It is available on the Kindle. I read the Kindle version, and I love the little notes and highlights that pop up on the Kindle version, although I do... on the kindle version they give you a progress bar at the bottom and i can say that actually causes me a little bit of techno stress and i want to actually find out how to switch it off because you keep seeing this 10 percent 15 percent and you sort of go in this little race to finish it so i need to get rid of the progress bar but uh, eye disorder is a terrific book and dr rosen thank you very much for joining in joining us for the number one the first it's a monkey podcast
4: and thank you very much for having me on your inaugural show
0: the one question i have to you after listening to that that interview dr rosen said that there are nine and ten year olds developing android apps why are they not working for us
1: I don't know we're obviously advertising the wrong places
0: <laughs> well if you think i mean i wonder what you know in australia you do go uh you know walk past a, a mcdonald's and and i believe is the age 14 that school kids are allowed to work a couple Minimum of hours age. A yeah 14
1: 13. So, somewhere I th- there.
0: so i think around 14 a couple of hours a week it would actually be quite interesting if we could get um a 14 year old that that instead of them wanting to work at maccas they want to come cut a bit of code for
1: us um, that yeah. would that would be quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with the uh, with the the pressure in tech hiring, you know, it's always sort of driving the uh, the the driving us to look into new places. Um, and yeah, obviously, you know, we you know always value skills over pretty much anything else. Doesn't matter what their background is. So sure, if a if a good fourteen year old came to us and had had a little bit of a portfolio and had created like one decent Android app, it would totally yeah well email us at it's a monkey dot 14 years old <laughs> <laughs>
0: and uh, obviously we we um you know we're not we're not into child child labor or anything <laughs> like that we strict uh, we stick within any Laws of the land. So no, no, we're not looking at developing any sweatshops or anything like that. But um, I think there is something to be said. I mean, we hired someone recently at 89N and Jamie and she's been coding websites since she was 12 years old. So that generation is starting to come through now. But do you suffer any techno stress?
1: Um, I've got I think I've got fairly good at managing it over the years I've done things like um, I stop uh, I stop my email from notifying me when emails come in and I do it so it's just I just read them as I as like when I have a spare moment in time so I try and do things with technology to stop it interrupting me Um, you know with my phone as well often you know won't necessarily answer it if I'm not in the you know not in the right space like I try and try and push back a little bit on, on that kind of stuff um I don't know. I mean, I, I live a lot of my life in technology anyway, so it rarely annoys I think me. That's uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> if uh, if any of you uh, ever visit us
0: at the offices in Sydney, Australia, here you'll you'll certainly see we all we all of us are incredibly immersed in technology, and the the real um, world sometimes is just a bit of a distraction for us. Yeah, the, the stress comes when you go
1: on holiday and you don't have technology.
0: <laughs> well, I can tell you what causes me techno-stress. I mean, I think I'm quite good at separating. I'm a bit of an all-or-nothing creature. And I get techno-stress when other people can't seem to switch off their tech when you're with friends and it just permeates that. I just I just think that boundary issue, and maybe over time society will get a little bit better at that, at that boundary issue, you know, when when the appropriate time for on and when the appropriate time for off.
1: Well, uh, once we have our Google glasses, you'll be uh, checking your email and watching videos while you're talking to friends, and nobody's going to know. So.
0: <laughs> well, that's that. That might be uh, an interesting or and or sad compromise. So, yeah. um, so James, we're coming to the end of the episode one of the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, um, where do you think the future is going to take this podcast? How are you feeling about where where we're heading with it?
1: Ah, oh, fantastic! A uh, million million listeners on the first podcast, I reckon. A million listeners, <laughs> and we'll no, uh, it, it'll be good. It's it's exciting. It's it's good to uh, you know uh, have a chat about these ideas. And there's so much stuff happening in tech that you know. Never, never going to have a, a lack of things to talk about.
0: Should we create an API into the podcast where somehow they can mash up the content and, you know, do something with it? We, we can try. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks very much for listening to the episode one of the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber and with me has been James Peter. We're the co-founders of 89n.com, home of Manage Flutter. Home of check dog, home of tourka, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at monkey podcast, email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com or you can call us us number 415-625-3889 leave us a message that we will play on the next podcast so from myself and james we will see you next time in terms of frequency we are going to aim for at this stage every two weeks that may get more frequent hopefully it's not going to get less frequent so subscribe Follow our Twitter account and we'll keep you in the loop. And once again, thanks for listening.